Welcome to episode number 239 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Jill, and with me today we have Ryan, Michael, and Noah. And you may have noticed, it looks like Michael spent the night at Ryan's house, and they haven't killed each other yet. (laughs) Good job, boys. Yeah. (laughs) So on this very exciting episode, uh, we have an exclusive product announcement from Pine64. If you were excited about the Pine phone, the Pine tab, the Pine book, and the Pine watch, just you wait. This is very exciting. And we also have an interview with Bill Shouten, who is here to discuss open source and education. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All this and more coming up right now on Destination Linux to keep your penguins marching. Next week is our first ever DLN Megafest, and all the fun begins at 1 p.m. Eastern for the recording of Destination Linux, and then at 3 p.m. Eastern, or 1900 UTC, we officially celebrate 30 years of Linux with a Megafest. And here are some events we have planned for this celebration. So the celebration actually kicks off right now. That's right. We're doing a giveaway with Steam Keys, so you can go to the the discourse forum at dealinforum.com. You'll find a link that's pinned at the top, and right now you can check it out, and you can just reply to that giveaway thread to be entered into the giveaway. And you simply just tell us what Linux means to you, and you're entered. So we're randomly picking winners throughout the event from that thread, so be sure to let us know in that thread. Uh, Next Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern, it kicks off with the full Megafest. We start with Live Hangout, where everyone is invited to join us. The link to join will be on the Destination Linux forum as well, so dealinforum.com, and we will be using Jitsi to host the rooms. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to, at some point, you can ask the DLN hosts anything where you might find out things like our worst show experience, our favorite guests, most prized tech possessions, favorite open source projects, and more. Any any question you'd like to ask us. I have a new favorite tech possession as well. <laughs> you do. We did a video on it yesterday. We actually <laughs> upgraded Michael's ancient computer, which we're sending for your museum, Jill. Yay. And your com- your comment that any older and it would we do a treasure hunt on it during the live yes. stream was so I think she only takes hilarious. things from the last hundred years. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> We're also going to be doing a five hundred dollar donation to an open source project of your choice. So we're gonna have everybody on live, we're gonna have you vote, we're gonna use a randomizer. And then we're going to make a donation in honor of 30 years of Linux to that open source project out there. So make sure to join us live for that. And then directly after we're headed into Game Fest, we're going to play all kinds of fun games here like Hedge Wars, Zenotic, maybe some Among Us or Splitgate, which we're going to talk about later in the show. So there is so much fun we're going to have here at Megafest. Make sure to join us next Sunday. This episode of Destination Linux, hey, it's brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service. Fully managed database as a service means that you offload all of the administration to DigitalOcean. You let them handling the provision and the scaling and the updates and the backups and the security of all your clusters. And you focus on what you want to focus on, which is rolling out your app and building that app and let DigitalOcean do all the heavy lifting. Now, you might think to yourself, 
can DigitalOcean really handle this? I thought DigitalOcean was a server company. Well, they are, but they built this service in partnership with MongoDB. And that means that together they've ensured that you're going to get access to the latest releases of MongoDB, document the databases that they become available. Now, as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can start it for free. Actually, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. That's do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. Again, do.co slash DLN dash Mongo to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB. And a huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. This week, we wanted to talk about the importance of using open source in education. To tackle this subject, we Bill has 20 years of IT experience and over a decade of experience managing school infrastructure and IT. Bill, Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Before we get started in the main discussion, can you tell us about how you personally got started with Linux and your Linux journey? A long time ago in a land far away, I was uh, introduced to a distribution called ZipSlack, which came on a zip disk, uh, a whopping 100 meg zip disk, where I booted it up and learned about the basics of Linux. And my eyes were open from there. The So I eventually learned about Red Hat, Mandrake, SUSE, Debian, a whole bunch of other distributions. And I even started a Linux user group in the area that I was living at the time. Wonderful. I love Zip Slack, by the way, too. <laughs> I've awesome. never heard of that. That was new for me. That's the first time I've heard of that distro. So I'm going to have to look up some history on that one. <laughs> so let's lay the foundation of why this is such an important subject for us to cover. You know, schools have been a major target. We've talked about it on this show for both Microsoft, Apple, Google. Everybody's going in the schools. Even personally, with my kids in school, I see them switch out between having regular Windows laptops to Chromebooks and back and forth. In your opinion, what is the strategy behind tech targeting education so heavily here? Obviously, future business leaders and future educators come from our school district. I mean, our plain and simple, our kids are our future. Everybody wants to get into schools so that they can get their cloud, their product, their platform into the hands of kids before someone else does call it an arms race of hardware and, and cloud, if you will. Microsoft uh, and Google were kind of behind Apple for many, many years. Apple was the, the gold standard of education, but the price point of Apple was really cost prohibitive to many school districts. And this is kind of where Google came in. Google said, look, we'll give you the email service and we'll give you the application suite and we'll give you an affordable device with the Chromebook and kind of a, a whole encompassing ecosystem of, of cloud, hardware and applications and we'll make it very easy to manage. And that became very attractive for school districts, um, especially where an iPad deployment may not have been as successful. Microsoft was a bit late to the game with their live at EDU program at the time. Uh, they, they didn't really see this as being the next big thing. They figured that students who go into the business world are going to be using their products and services anyway, because that's the gold standard. However, that's changed over the years. As these kids grew up, they say, well, I didn't really learn Office 365 and I don't really care for Microsoft. So I'm, as a department head, going to implement Google G Suite. Or they'll say, well, I grew up using MacBooks and I love Apple, so we're going to implement iPads in the workplace. I think getting in quickly 
was the key for these big technology companies to remain successful over the long term. Okay. So I know another thing that happens is that schools actually often receive lar large grants from the likes of Microsoft to not only use their software and licenses, but actually buy equipment and pay for employee salaries. And actually, wow. this is common practice in the U.S. with colleges and the one I work for. So I have experienced uh, 30 years of experience with this. And uh, because of this, the IT departments often only know and have been trained with Microsoft certifications. And it's very hard to overcome the changing of the old guard. This is definitely a, a problem with our local community colleges. I, yeah. I had no idea that they were actually, I mean, the grant thing, I assumed, but I didn't know mm -hmm. the grants include paying employee wages. Yes. I mean, that, that gives you a very, that challenges the school a lot to make sure that you're using their products if they're giving lots exactly. and lots of money to the these schools. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, and like, that makes it like, very hard for anybody smaller to compete, frankly. Yes. Bill, you, you, we talked about how you've been working in schools with, uh, for over a decade. What kind of changes have you seen that has impacted the choices that schools are making for software over the years? I started off as a consultant. I actually went to go work for a school district, and then I came back to the consulting world because I missed implementation and projects and all the fun stuff that goes along with it. So what's happened over, call it the last decade, is the advent of the cloud has really dictated what software students are using. If I give a student a laptop and I say, okay, go ahead and take this home and submit an online assessment with a couple of forms and, and maybe a, a word processing document, the student needs an easy way to make that happen. Google and Microsoft have both created a cloud platform where that can happen. Microsoft through their Office 365 and Google through their G Suite. Everybody else has started to jump aboard that bandwagon and say, oh, I can do that too. Or I've got this web app over here. I've got this database over here. I, I think assignments have changed as well to adapt to the changing climate of hardware and software, meaning that kids are now being asked to submit a podcast, submit a video, create a Web 2.0 tool that outlines the work that you did. And what's really neat about that is that as these tools evolve and develop, I've actually seen less and less of a dependency on Microsoft, on Apple, and even on Google, and more choice where the student can pick the medium in which they're delivering their assignments. Doesn't something like a Chromebook, though, fit that world where you're doing a lot of cloud-based Scenarios, is that why Chromebooks are so popular in an education scenario where most of the stuff you're asking them to do is in the cloud? I mean, because you still have to interface with it, right? In some way. You do. And and the reason why, plain and simple, the reason why the Chromebook is winning out is because it's a more mature product for education than even the iPad, in my opinion. The Chromebook is also a lot more affordable. So if I have a budget of $30,000 for a school district, I can obviously equip and outfit more Chromebooks than I can iPads or even Windows tablets. Now, because the Chromebook is the device of choice, that inherently links Google and G Suite as the platform of choice in which to submit all those assignments. The, the one-click sign-in with Google provides convenience to a teacher to where they can save classroom time and trouble with, I can't log into this or that student can't print over here. Google has really helped evolve the, the single sign-on experience. 
Let's dig into that a little little further. So I imagine that there's a budget component to this when you go to look to buying something from a school district, particularly if that school district is publicly funded, right? But aside from the budget constraints, aside from the fact that you can go and get free and open source software, download it, place it on any machine, what are some of the other additional benefits that you've been able to leverage by using open source software? My goal whenever I have a conversation with someone about open source is to inform them about the choices that they have available to them as a human being. Whether they choose to take that choice or not is up to them. But even outside of budget, I've been able to help schools implement an HR management solution. So an example comes to mind is Orange HRM. It's a a free and open source solution to manage human resources, time off, vacation, hiring, employee reviews, and it's great for an HR department. And, and they'll come to me and say, well, our HR system isn't quite working the way that it should. Uh, we're not able to pull up teacher reviews very well. No problem. I got you covered. And I can spin up a web application of Orange HRM for them very quickly. And you can use other platforms like that, such as Snipe It for Inventory Management. OS Ticket comes to mind, which I've actually used for even monitoring and maintaining requests for maintenance departments, for food services, for other events at a school. So I... I try to use open source to bring people together to fix lingering problems that maybe someone didn't want to throw money at or someone didn't know what the right solution was or someone was afraid to try something out. I think for them, open source has helped save time in that respect. Yeah, Bill, you've touched on this a little bit, but what kind of open source solutions have you seen implemented in the school system so far? And what's the reception been like? Going back to the the prior question, we've implemented Snipe It at almost all of our member schools. And everybody from the administration to the Board of Education to the on-site IT staff has benefited from having an easy, free simple inventory management system to where they can track the status of all their technology assets in the field. I've also used products like Clonezilla. Always talk about the Raspberry Pi and how that can be used for educational purposes. I mean, that's that's kind of the go-to thing. And so far, it's been received pretty well. I'll be very honest with you, not all things in in open source are received with open arms. Uh, I have gone into some schools where there were open source deployments that did not go well. And we use those as learning experiences to figure out what direction we want to go in long term to avoid Linux and open source from being perceived in a negative way. Now, do you lead with that when you're going you know, before the board to make a decision of rolling out an inventory management control system, for instance, with the fact that it's open source, or do you just let the product speak for itself? Or what have you found is the best method for getting people to adopt it? If I use terms such as open source or Linux for with the Board of Education, I the eyes just glaze over because to them that's that they don't have time to understand that terminology. And they've entrusted me as a consultant to just deploy something and make it work as cheaply as possible. So I let the product speak for itself. And when someone does come to me and ask, what is this running on? How is this powered? That's when I tell them that it's running on Linux or that it's an open source and freely available solution. Part of the conversation that you have to have, and Ryan, you mentioned Board of Ed, is there's really four or five groups of people that you have to cater to when explaining Linux and open source. And and the, the first is the Board of Ed. Those are the people that are worried about money, 
budget, compliance with laws. You've got your school administrators who need it to be convenient for them because they don't have time to really adapt or to learn to something new. You've got teachers and teachers are probably one of the most important groups because we have a mantra in our company that is time lost in a classroom cannot be regained. And Jill, you as a teacher can probably relate to that. If there's a technical issue in the classroom, you have to move on because you don't have time to delay your class by five or 10 minutes. The next group is students. Students are the easiest ones to sell open source to because to them, it's just another tool in their belt. It's a means to an end. If you tell them it's it's uh, Krita or Inkscape, that's fine. It's just another editing system to them. Do you find that there is a lack of preconceived expectations with students and does that help? There is and yes, it does. Because when I was a student, and I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was, uh, there was... <laughs> an expectation of, well, we have to go to the Mac lab in order to run the Mac software for you to output this product in the Mac world. Or, okay, we're going to go to the Windows lab because I need you to spit something out in Microsoft Excel, and that's the only way it can be done. Those days are long gone, and we've adapted to, I need you to create an entire project, and part of that is to develop a spreadsheet. So that's why if I sit kids down in front of, hypothetically, uh a lab of Fedora or OpenSUSE or Ubuntu or name your distro type of machine, and there's an icon for LibreOffice on there, they're just going to say, okay, I figure that's where I do my productivity. Double click, create your content, submit it. The last group of people that have a stake in the open source game in schools are the parents. And parents are very important because sometimes parents may not be aware of what technology is being used or how it's being used in the school. By explaining to parents the benefits of open source and what it's teaching kids in terms of choice and in terms of community can make a big world of difference for for it to be successful. This is very interesting. And I want to dig into a little bit more about this with the, the parents and the teachers influence. You talked about how the teachers have a lot of influence, and especially with if there's any kind of hurdles, they they don't want it, they have to move on really quickly. What you know, what kind of influence do they have in the terms of the decisions for the IT stuff? You know, especially with like the teachers and the parents. I'm not sure if the parent you said the parents don't even know that they have the ability to influence that. How could they go about doing it? That really depends on the community at large and sometimes where you are and what type of school it is. In the case of some of the more rural schools, it may be harder for parents to get involved because maybe the meetings that they can attend are far away or not or don't happen very often. In an urban school, maybe the parents are working two full-time jobs and it's hard to find that time to establish that communication. So I think if parents do want to know more, I think it's important for them to reach out to their school administrators first. Uh, that Let that be the primary point of contact and allow the administration to get the technology department involved. I always encourage the on-site IT directors at my schools to be open and available to parents to not only educate the parents a little bit, but maybe also to gain some additional insight into additional technologies that may be out there that the parent uses in the workplace that they're not aware of? Or are there other concerns that the parent has regarding student activity at home? You know, and, and being establishing that communication and being an advocate for 
your student is the greatest thing that you can do for a parent. And on the flip side, on the IT director side, and I've been in that situation, reaching out to the parents and maybe even participating in a board meeting or in a parent-teacher association meeting and saying, hey, my name's Bill. I'm the IT director here. I'm happy to answer any questions you have about what technology we're using in our school and how it's being used. Bill, I'm I'm loving this information here. This this to me is so interesting because I've personally watched as we've been in different school districts in Georgia how everything has moved toward this Chromebook world. And we'll get into some of the privacy things and stuff later on in in the questions, but Google has a suite of solutions, of course, here. When Black Friday hits, by the way, in, in Georgia, the big holiday shopping season, if you look where the Chromebooks are sitting, people are swarming around them. They want them for school. Like they just, they can't, you just see the carts flying and the Chromebooks going off the shelves. It's crazy. Google has created this suite of solutions from Chromebooks to Google Classroom and other things. What are some alternatives that we have here that you've seen work in place of these? So the beauty of Linux is that it can run on almost any piece of hardware. And therefore that makes it the equalizer. So what do I mean by the equalizer? If you have a school district that says, we're going to do everything on Chromebooks and students A, B, and C come in with 11-inch Chromebook that has four gigs of RAM, maybe a dual core Intel Atom processor, and then students C, D, E, F, and G come in with a pixel book with an i5, eight gigs of RAM a 15-inch screen and a massive SSD, they'll notice a difference in their performance about how many tabs can be opened, how they play back video, how quickly they can submit their assignments. And those little things add up. And that's probably why sometimes around the holidays, you see those swarms of devices. Linux is great because you can take a device, let's say a, a used Lenovo E530, and someone could take a Pinebook Pro, and you could literally be doing the same work at fairly the same speed and submit it the same way. So therefore, that's why I call Linux the equalizer, because it is universal. It doesn't have to be on the latest and greatest hardware. It's nice if it is, but it doesn't have to be. That takes some of the weight off the parents from buying the $800 Chromebook versus a a $200 laptop that could really do the same thing. So that's on the hardware side. When I have this conversation with educational institutions, I also like to bring up the fact of e-waste. You know, you're going to buy these devices and eventually they're going to, the, the Google does end of life their Chromebooks. They say the following devices are not supported in the next three years. We're no longer going to be providing security updates. And in some states, that's not a, like you can't run those devices anymore. They become paperweights and they sit on shelves and shelves and they they waste up, they waste an incredible amount of space or they end up in a landfill or in a recycling plant. I have encouraged school districts, you know what, why don't we look at a business in the area that might be unloading some laptops that they were leasing for some of their business folks. Let's let's find a way to collaborate with that local business, build a community relationship, purchase that hardware for pennies on the dollar and keep electronic waste out of the landfill. So that's that's the hardware side of it. From the platform side of it, there are plenty of open source alternatives out there to do what Google does. And I'll, I'll list them and then I'll explain the, the good and bad of going that route. The first thing that comes to mind is document storage and document management. 
in in Linux, we have we have some amazing tools to available to us, such as OwnCloud, CFile. Those come to mind. Some schools may deploy a NAS solution, like a Synology NAS, because it comes with five years of warranty from the hardware manufacturer, which keeps the district happy for online assessments and assignments, you've got Moodle, which is a a very mature product. And Moodle can be scaled out. You can have multiple Moodle instances. You can have them clustered. You can have different Moodles for different departments. And if the school doesn't have the money to host that themselves in their own infrastructure, use something like a DigitalOcean. You know, DigitalOcean, as we know, scales out really well. And it's perfectly suited for growth when looking at different platforms. Obviously, Google has their Google Certified Educator Program, which means that a teacher can take classes to learn how to teach Google Classroom. IT professionals can take classes on how to manage the Google ecosystem at large. I think if you're going to roll your own solution with, let's say, a combination of a Moodle and a C file, that you need to be able to train your staff on how to manage that with the understanding there may be some custom code or some custom databases to accommodate single sign-on, database tables talking to each other, uh, teachers to feel comfortable using those tools in their classroom. Is it worth it? In my opinion, it is. For some others, it's not. But at least by having that conversation of what alternatives are out there, especially when Google has an outage or Microsoft has an outage, the educational community feels empowered to explore other alternatives. As you've gone to look at these different distros that you might roll out, which ones have you found to be successful? And I'll add on there, which ones do you think uh, maybe places that are looking at large scale deployment should stay away from? Well, one of the biggest concerns that a school district has when bringing in new hardware or software or solutions is support. They're they're very hesitant to roll in a, a new solution if there's no support commercially available. So I could easily turn around and tell the school district, I'll be your support. I have you covered. The issue becomes if I tell them that, what if something happens to Bill and he gets hit by a cement truck. Now what? Do we have to lean on a bunch of community forums? I, as the IT director, want to be able to pick up the phone and call the school district, I'm sorry, call the software provider or the hardware provider and get some help. So to that that effect, my two distributions I would recommend for rolling out Linux at large would be probably Red Hat and SUSE. Red Hat and SUSE not only offer commercial support for their enterprise platforms. Both of them also have academic programs where schools can purchase their services at a greatly reduced discount. We were talking about the Raspberry Pi earlier and and you know it's such a universally loved device. What are some ways you've seen this device get leveraged in the education system? Well, we obviously all know that the Raspberry Pi is an affordable and amazing device for <laughs> learning coding such as Python. And that that goes without explanation. Yeah. And I've seen it used for that. Then seen the Python model extended to STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, yeah. as far as robotics go. So, you know, a school could go out and buy a, a curriculum with the hardware, the software, and the subscription all built in, turnkey solution, off you go. But to me, that's not 
really doing engineering, that's following a manual in a box and ending up with, with the recipe in the end. Engineering is really starting off with a, an idea and turning that into a finished product. So what the Pi affords the community is here's some GPIO pins and here's how they're used. Here's some guides on accomplishing a certain task. So my favorite one is the open source type of weather station. Mm, nice. So I encourage the schools, if they have time and, and, and availability in the curriculum, hey, you should take some of your tech-oriented kids and give this a shot. It's kind of neat. It's not going to cost you a lot. And they get some real-life exposure to the world around them. You know, they're going to develop a weather station that gets put out on the internet and people in the community can read it for data and the students gain some exposure into open source and to investing in their community a little bit. Hey, we're doing this for our team. I'm talking to one school district right now who's looking at buying a 3D printer. You, you know you can build your own, right? Wouldn't that be kind of <laughs> cool if you guys built your own 3D printer? Awesome. Oh, yeah. I never, I never really considered that. Yeah, we're going to take a look at that. We'll let you know if we need any help. But thanks for that idea. Well, then you've That's got awesome. OctoPi as well. So you could, you literally could have a school, people be in the classrooms and they could, they could send the communications, the printouts to the 3D printer, which could be anywhere in the lab using a Raspberry Pi with OctoPi on it. But the, the really cool thing that I've experienced with the Raspberry Pi, because to me, this is so obvious easily to get into school, such an easy solution for everyone is, We've talked about it being in Targets. We've talked about seeing the Raspberry Pi and Best Buys. Every store you go into, there's a little Linux sock sitting right there, which just makes me so excited. Mm -hmm. But I was in Micro Center the other day, and they dedicated the entire back half of their store, a separate room, not just a shelf, a separate room to the Raspberry yeah. Pi with every module and hat and things you could imagine back there. Now, think about how much that costs for a store to dedicate that much space to a product like that. But you got to think about what the sales are. They even had Raspberry Pi t-shirts and other things back there that you can buy. So not is it something That's that awesome. you might have to get for school and education, but it's something people were being a fan of. Why do you buy t-shirts? Because you're a fan of it. You get excited when you get things to work and stuff. So Raspberry Pi to me is such an obvious option, even for parents to go to the schools and say, hey, can I donate a bunch of these? Because they're so inexpensive to the school to get kids using and learning those. So you go back to the equalizer statement, take a device like the Pi 400, which is the all-in-one Raspberry Pi with the keyboard and the ports in the front and the, that you can connect a monitor to. If I have a student who maybe doesn't have the best connectivity at home or the most access to technology, maybe there's five or six kids and they all share one computer, I can give them a Raspberry Pi with a Wi-Fi dongle and say, here, now you can do the same thing that everybody else is doing. I like the fact that the Pi kind of checks all the boxes for students, teachers, educators, administrators, and board members. Those five key groups that, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, digital signage also comes to mind. You know, hey, I'd like a, can you put something outside the main office that just runs a simple slide deck of activities and how much is that going to cost? Sorry, the TV might cost you a couple hundred bucks and the computer is going to cost you 70. Yep. Huh? $70? <laughs> yeah. 
What do you mean? Are you, do you have that right? Are you sure that's right? What kind of junk box are you going to be bringing in from your boneyard? No, 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 no. This is the device right here. It's, it's this big. It's going to tuck right behind the TV and we can control the content on it that you want to put up. I actually just uh, recently deployed uh, last week a setup for someone to do that. They have digital signage in their office and they want to have videos playing. So the Raspberry Pi is a very, very useful thing. And it's, it's awesome to hear that it's being used in a lot of ways in related to education and stuff. It's such a great way and a great avenue for for getting people to use open source and Linux in the classroom, especially since there's so much excitement about it. And because it is available at li- the likes of Micro Center and in retail, parents and students can go out and just buy them. And in fact, what's really cool in my school district, I have the the teachers and my students come to um, the my group, the Linux Chicks of Los Angeles. Uh, we do a series of workshops of uh, Linux install fests and things you can do with the Pi. So I advertise it to the my whole department. And so we I always get lots of students and instructors. And it makes me feel so good because I'm really I'm introducing them to Linux and and using open source, you know, options. <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. Earlier in the interview Ryan said something about privacy concerns and not to bring it down a little bit, but this is a very important topic that I wanted to talk about. And there is a concern about dealing with kids and the privacy, right? There's even, there's laws related to it, but there are reports of issues with students having their webcams and stuff like that turned on while they're at home or other things that are invasive by these, you know, these, these remote computers that they're forced to have. And and they're, they're so locked down, but they also give remote access in certain cases, as reports have said. Now, what can be done here to keep students safe without violating their privacy? The first and most important piece that we need to, to address a very valid concern out there is communication. Explaining Parents explaining these concerns to their schools and schools explaining in return to the parents what the laws allow, don't allow for, and what policies the the school has in place to ensure that all parties involved are are getting their needs met. So I can tell you in the state where I live, it is against the law for a student's webcam to be accessed remotely like that, and even for teachers as well. So when you're in the building, there are other ways to monitor screens in the classroom with uh, using tools such as GoGuardian. But it is illegal uh, to do so at uh, at home. Monitoring a webcam like that, it's it's there's there's fines for that. You just you just can't do that. Um, is has that happened in other places? Yes, I've I've also read that. But this is maybe where you, as the parent, get involved and say to your school, "I'm not allowing this to happen. I am going to be putting a piece of electrical tape over the camera on the on the Chromebook when the when the machine is at home." If that is against the school's regulations for me to do that, I'd like to find some other way to have my child use technology, but I'm, that's something I'm very strong against. This is where I'll circle back to communication and policy development. I, as a consultant, don't try not to get into the policy development. I'm not a lawyer. I'm just kind of a guy who builds networks and fixes computers and plays with technology. So if a parent could go to their school board and say, does my does our district have a technology committee that meets 
once a year or a policy committee that meets once a year? If so, I would like to be a part of that so I have a means of voicing my concerns. We certainly don't want to leave it there. So leave us with this. If you were to give people one piece of advice or one thing that you would like them to know about the importance of open source software in the education system, what would that be, Bill? It would be, don't be afraid to look outside the the three big boxes of Apple, Microsoft, and Google. If you're not familiar with open source, start at the beginning and read about what open source is and how open source is more than just a community. Sometimes it's a lifestyle. It's, it's a way that students can learn early on how to interact with their community in a positive way. There are other options out there, and part of education is educating ourselves. The one note that I would want to leave everybody with is never stop learning and growing through Linux and open source. Bill, if people want to get a hold of you, I, I just, first of all, thank you so much for this interview. It's been fascinating to me. If people have questions, they want to get a hold of you. Can they reach you on the DLN forum? What's a good way to get a hold of you? Um, I am always hanging around the the DLN channels in Matrix or on Discord. Those are the kind of the two ways that I'm often found on on the DLN spectrum. Uh, if you want to send a message towards me through the DLN discourse forums, that's okay as well. I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody has. And is it Bill, the IT infrastructure guy, or what's your <laughs> user, Dave? People you'll, fi- you. you'll find me under Renegade XT or CT uh. Linux. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Bill, for coming on and, and talking to us about this. Thank you for having me. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome piece of software. It is a password manager that helps you keep peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, Bitwarden provides you with tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do that. Plus, you have access to all of your data across many different types of devices, whether that's a web browser extension, mobile apps, desktop applications, or even on the command line if you're so inclined. Bitwarden also seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also want you to check out the premium accounts because it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right, for, for just... $10 per year, you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, party customer service, and so much more. All of this for less than a dollar per month. That's right. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. All right, so now the time you've all been waiting for, we have an exclusive Woo-hoo. interview from Pine 64, and we're going to roll that footage right now. I'm so excited about this next topic. Pine 64 has a new product being announced today, and joining us to talk about it is Lucas Arizinski from Pine 64. Welcome back to the show, Lucas. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Has been a while. You're like a celebrity around here, man. Every time (laughs) Pine does something new, we get so excited, and I love that you got something for us today. Well, thanks for having me. Maybe I'll set the stage first a bit. People have been asking us to uh, create a an ebook uh, reader and e-ink device for quite some time. We have been looking into making one since 2017. We have proactively been looking at like what SOC would work, what uh, sort of panels were available, and 
especially in the early days, we quickly learned that one of the major challenges we would face is that big companies such as Amazon with their Kindle devices, they heavily subsidize these e-readers. So we could never really be able to match a price of uh, a device which is subsidized by people buying uh, books and advertisement. Um, and so a few years passed and we have chosen our next um, SOC, which we're going to be working with, which is the 3566 from Rockchip. It's a really, really good chip. One of its features, one of its core features, it's that it has a native e-ink display uh, capability. So we thought, well, here's our opportunity. Here's our chance uh, to create something which people have wanted for quite some time. And while we're at it, let's go full, you know, full out and do the best um, e-ink device that we can. So today we're uh, introducing the Pine Note, which is effectively a full-blown single board uh, computer running an ARM chip uh, with an e-ink display, high DPI and high refresh rates. Take my money. I don't necessarily... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm already in for sure. Yeah, we're we're in. You you don't even have to say anything else. We're we're so sold on this. I mean, this has been. I know why people have been asking for it for a long time from Pine. Number one, uh, the products that Pine release are fantastic. We can't stop talking about them. Uh, number two is this this whole arena of these e ink devices. There there's a lot of cool options out there, but not from a trustworthy company that. Either the company's so big that you're worried about what they're putting on the device or you're not necessarily wanting to support that type of company uh, because they'll lock you into their their type their stores and things like that. Or the other issue that comes up is you're not trustworthy of the company. Will it be around if you go and invest in it and have support for it? And of course, all of those problems are squashed when Pine's in the mix there. I am so excited about having this. And is it Linux-based by chance? Absolutely. Yes. So, um, and as you maybe noticed, I'm being very cautious not to call this an e-reader or a a pad of some sort. Um, right. Um, because what we're running atop of this isn't a tailored operating system which just performs that one function, which is reading and taking notes. I mean, it can absolutely do this. But we're running a full-blown uh, Linux operating system with a full standard uh, desktop environment. It just it's the desktop environment. It will be KDE yeah. uh, Plasma. What you've been uh, talking to Michael too much? No, that's a great choice. Uh, yeah, it's, it, when we were talking about this uh, prior, prior to setting up the interview, he mentioned uh, he was talking about well, we're gonna, it's going to be a full system. I was like, Plasma? Is it is it Plasma? Oh, look at you, Michael, getting an early Christmas gift. Yeah. Just like the Steam Deck, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> right. I I am so excited about this. I mean, I'm excited in general because when you when you first talked about the Pine the Pine Note as being like you know and it being able to have like an e ink screen, that's something that I've wanted for a while for having a customizable e ink device because I mean I'm not really much of the like the ebook type of person. I I want it mostly for the note taking stuff because that is very mm -hmm. powerful as an option. Uh, and I also uh, was just ecstatic when I saw the specs 
for this particular device. There are so many cool things. You mentioned how it's got high, uh, good DPI and good refresh rates. So like the, the DPI is 227. And there's so much cool stuff. And I wanted to talk about a couple things because it's not just a, you know, as you said, it's not just an e-reader. It's not just a notepad device. It also has a lot of other extra features. And it's very, very powerful. When you compare it to other devices in this kind of range, it is just massively more powerful. So could you talk about the specs for it? Yeah, so um, it's running Rockchip's uh, new SoC, uh, the RK3566. Now, this is a very good SoC for two particular reasons. While it's not partic- it's not the most powerful in the range, the benef- it has a very strong benefit of not running uh, particularly hot. So it's a very cool running SOC, which is very good if you have something which is enclosed in a very thin um, aluminium case, right? It comes uh, paired with four gigs of uh, LPDDR4 RAM and 128 gigabytes of eMMC. I I must say that uh, compared to uh, other products which are similar, um, we have decided to 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 go you know full blown. A Linux system, no compromises here. So we're, we're really envisioning that this can have people think about this sort of technology, about e-ink in a different way. We're definitely going to be making, uh, you know, we're going to be thinking about making peripherals, uh, for it. So, uh, you know, we're going to see what sort of ideas people come up with, but it's definitely just going to be more than reading books and taking, um, Notes. It has uh, both microphones and uh, speakers. And while you probably will not want to watch uh, YouTube content on it, uh, listening to podcasts or internet radio or doing all sorts of things uh, of that nature is probably something that is quite viable. But I can also see it as a go-to device for people who want to browse the web and read things, yeah, specifically. Mm-hmm. Because if you sit even with a good quality tablet for a long time, especially in dim light, your eyes get quite strained. And here you can just fire up, you know, full-blown Firefox and go to your favorite website and have a read in a more comfortable way. Yeah, and if you and, combine uh, that with the mm-hmm. different, like, reader modes that are in these on the browsers now... You can essentially turn yes. any website into like an ebook style thing. Absolutely. Uh, so that's yes. really, really cool. Uh, yeah. there, there's a lot of interesting things about this particular d- device. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about that is incredibly exciting for me because I am an artist. And when I saw the specs, you, sa- you have the touch screen, but you also have a pen functionality. And it has Absolutely. support with Wacom stuff. So mm-hmm. tell us about that. Yeah, so, I mean, this is an excellent e-ink panel. One of the things which you will not find in most other uh, e-ink panel is also that it is a front-lit uh, panel, warm light, as well mm. as uh, cool light. And uh, there's, I believe, 36 different steps of illumination of the panel. Very nice. And this is something that potentially you could have uh, controlled from the operating system. And I can, I can see that being absolutely implemented so that, you know, when, when it starts getting dark, you, your, um, pine note basically just turns on the, an amber or like a, a 
changes the light uh, to a warmer color. And yes, and we have a Wacom uh, a panel on top of a capacitive panel. So the capacitive panel is for your fingers. So traditional sort of input. And then we have a, a Wacom panel for, 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 uh, for the pen atop of it. It's awesome. So it is pretty awesome. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I must say that I, I usually I try not to overhype uh, our devices. I don't think that's particularly healthy. Don't worry. We'll do um, it for you. <laughs> <laughs> But I, but I think that this device has a very unique quality uh, to it because it is completely open and it's great to see people experiment with this sort of technology. And finally, you have a device which is both powerful and completely open. So, you know, whatever you want to do, want to ex- install XFCE on this, go ahead. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Lucas, is the screen color e-ink or black and white e-ink? Black and white e-ink. There are two reasons for this. We have been looking at color e-ink panels and they are, so the way color e-ink panels work right now, as I understand it, is you have the high DPI black and white panel and atop of it, you have a lower resolution color. Uh, for one, this is a very expensive application of this technology. Uh, and secondly, the colors on these uh, color e-ink panels, they're, they're very muted. Yeah. This is something that will get gradually better. But the price to quality at this point in time is very steep. Uh, in, in bulk, we're talking about hundreds of dollars just for, for the panel itself. And at this present point in time, with this, with current technology, I don't necessarily think it's quite there yet to, you know, to be of a substantial benefit to end users. Maybe in, you know, maybe in two years or three years, it'll get there, but it's not quite there yet. You know, I know Noah was on a hunt along with me for a while looking for something that we could take our notes on that was private. It wasn't connected to any cloud services and things like that. I ended up going with this m- book you can put in a microwave and microwave it to erase your notes and keep writing in. I forget jet book or whatever they call it. <laughs> this really fills that, that hole that's been there of, I have notes that I'm taking for my business stuff that I have to keep private and locked down and have to trust. It's not sending to a cloud and putting my notes out there for everybody, but that's also convenient to carry around with you. But what's the first thing you're going to do when you get this device in your hand? <laughs> Good question. Um, you know what? When I get my sample, the first thing I'll do is my my wife reads a lot on her e-ink device. She does. Yeah. She spends hours. What I'll do, I'll give it to her. <laughs> Smart and man. And I'll ask her how she likes it. And if <laughs> if if this is something that she could feasibly use. I think that the big challenge is going to be, and this is thankfully not on us, it's going to be on our um, software partners to figure out, how do you make a device that has all the traditional computer functionality available to the end user, but this is a completely different paradigm. So how do you make that UI work? Do you do you go with a traditional plasma? Do you... Uh, yes. Do you do some? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is said plasma. Do you, do so you, yes. 
did you make some uh, significant tweaks to uh, to the default plasma to to make this more touch friendly, or do you do you go with plasma mobile and do alterations to plasma mobile uh, to accommodate a sort of a bigger device, a bigger uh, screen. It's, you know, thankfully this is not 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 on me to figure this out, uh, but this is definitely going to take some time. And this is probably the biggest challenge at this point in time is to figure out uh, the, you know, the appropriate uh, UI that will work for, for this. You all know the default OS you're going to put on it yet? Yes, we do. Uh, we have been working uh, in a sort of in a strategic partnership with Manjaro on a number of devices, and well this well will be no this will be no different. Uh, but obviously, if you uh, if you have a preference for a different operating system, you can just get any of the operating systems which are now being developed for uh, the Quartz sixty four because the Pine Note is effectively a derivative. Of the core 64 there should be perfectly uh, compatible with each other in fact nice. you can take the panel and connect it to the core 64 if you so wish <laughs> or you can or you can take a, uh, a you know get a e-ink any e-ink panel and, and connect to the the, the core 64 uh, if if you're interested in doing that any of the operating systems which are being developed for core 64 should just work um, on the pine note so sky's the limit I'm sure that somebody is going to come up with some really interesting way to interact with this device. Oh, yeah. Somebody yeah, said that sure. Sway may be the way to go, minus yes. minus the the keyboard, you know, uh, shortcuts. So somebody would have to figure out whether this would be multi finger swipes, multi finger gestures, uh, that sort of stuff. But you know, yeah, conceivably could could absolutely work. Yeah, that's interesting. It. So this is 191 by 232 by 7.4 millimeters. So that's the size of it. 438 grams, 10.3 inch. Features in this, uh, you have four D-mic mics. So you're putting mics inside of this. So we could actually do our whole podcast and interviews from this e-ink display. I'm thinking, Michael, he said we got to do something crazy with it. So maybe we could try that. Yeah, uh, yeah sounds good to that me. That would be awesome. <laughs> Lucas, I'm so excited about this because I have several Kindles in my computer collection, and the first thing I did with them was hack them. I mean, I mm -hmm. put mPlayer on it so I can play, play videos. Of course you and did, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I got it optimized so that the video looks actually halfway decent, and I used to use it for listening to podcasts. So for me, this is like, you know, this is that ultimate device I was wanting when the Kindle originally came out. Yeah, it's so awesome. I'm so excited. I'm really, really glad to hear. I, I'm. We're talking about like what we're gonna do with this device, and you know, I, I am very, I'm very interested in the note taking aspect of it, and also just having an e-ink panel to be able to read things online and stuff like that. But I am so excited to play with the Wacom Pen stuff because, like, it instantly I thought. I could use this as a replacement for a Wacom tablet in Krita or something like that. Like that mm -hmm. has so you mean so plug many... it into your computer and use it as an interface like from there, yeah. or you could use yeah. it by itself too, I suppose. You could, you could actually have it directly on its own. Look, on, we're already planning on hacking it, like yeah. figuring out different things we could do with it. Yeah. And it has you Bluetooth support. So maybe we could have it wirelessly connected as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. Lots of, lots of different configurations, I think. One of the cool things about having the Wacom uh, panel on it is that in 
the event that you are not particularly fond of the pen which we have chosen uh, from the vendor, any pen which is compatible with the panel will just work. Yeah, I mean, this again, awesome. open device. Cool. So if if you have one already, unless you're particularly fond of the one which we which we're going to be carrying, just uh, you know, use the one you have. Yeah, there's a lot of like aspects to the Pine Note which are or open and it extends to uh, the peripherals and um, what you can connect up to it and how you can make it work for you. I already wrote you a check before the show even started because it's Pine, so why not? <laughs> but um, when can we officially get our hands on this or pre-order this device and what is it going to cost? So we are going to be running an early adopters batch sometime in late October, early November is our guess at this point. Uh, the Pine Notes, they have entered production at this point in time. It's going to take a little while for the factory to deliver them. We need to do proper QA on them. It's going to be a little while before we're absolutely certain that, you know, it's a, it's a first run of a new product. Yeah. So it takes a little longer from factory to, to the warehouse. But we're thinking that probably by, by November, we're going to be having them up for sale on the Pine Store. And the initial batch, we are including uh, both a cover, which works with the onboard hall sensor. So when you when you close the cover, the device goes to sleep. As well as the pen, uh, we we will be in later batches. We will be selling these things separately, and uh, the price is and will always be uh, three ninety nine US dollars. Very nice here. So to Go through everything to make sure people are getting the full understanding of what you're getting. You've got a 60 frame per second e-ink panel, 191, 232, 7.4 millimeter, 438 grams. You're getting a full Linux operating system, a 10.3 inch screen, 1404 by 1872 resolution on this, 227 DPI, 16 grayscale, touchscreen, EMR pen with Wacom capabilities. You've got a CPU, which is the Rock 3566, and you have a GPU, which is includes the Mali G52 inside of that as well. Four gigs of LP DDR4 RAM, 120 gigabytes of storage, type C USB 2.0. You have uh, your mics, of course, built in, stereo speakers, Wi Fi 2.4, 5 gigahertz, BGNAC, Bluetooth. 4G optional, so we can do this. We can put a potential cellular chip inside this? Yes. So uh, before we ran out of LCD panels for the Pine Tab, we created a bunch of add-on boards for it. And one of those add-on boards was a modem, and the same modem which we're using on the, uh, on the Pine Phone. That is going to be compatible with the Pine Note, but... We need to figure out how to make it work first. So, <laughs> uh, no, do, do not take this as an official announcement at this point in time. This is something which we're going to be working with, but we do think that that eventually we will get it to work and fit within this chassis. Very, very nice. And then a four thousand milliamp hour battery inside of this device. Do you have any idea yet of how long that Ooh. for an e ink that's going to stay charged? I mean, that seems like a multi day potential there. In suspend, a long, a long time. In regular operational mode, 
I don't want to wager a guess at this yeah. point in time. It's hard to tell until we get like uh, engineering samples in and stuff like that uh, with Linux on them. Right. Uh, it's very, very difficult uh, to tell. But what I can tell you is that we're definitely going to be working towards a reader mode. If you're reading a document, the SOC spins up so you can open your PDF or whatever you're reading. And then it will go to sleep within, say, 10 seconds. And because you know that the the image on e-ink stays, right? right? Regardless of whether it's being powered or not. And in that mode, I think it's going to last for days and days and days and days and days. If you're going to be using this as if it was a, a, a computer continually running programs and so forth and so on, I mean, it will last you a day. Whether it's going to be more than that, I, I can't tell at this point in time. Very nice. And you get all of that for three ninety nine, and you're making you're gonna make us wait. Are you gonna make me wait too till November to pre order, or can you like can you? Mate, we'll we'll talk after the show. But this Aww. is this is awesome. Um, we're so excited about this device. But obviously, there are devices right now that we've been talking about quite a lot on Destination Linux because everybody ordered one, like the Pine Time and things. But you mentioned accessories for the Pine Note. So I'm excited because I believe you have some of the accessories you've made for the Pine phone, which kind of gives me an idea of some of the things that could eventually come out for the Pine Note. So do you have something with you there you could show us? I can show you the Pine phone keyboard. All right. uh, Nice. I must say that as far as these sort of devices go, and I have a few um, small devices of of this sort with, with the keyboard. This is definitely one of the nicest keyboards ever developed for it, uh, for, for a small factor device such as this. It's, it's really good. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased. I mean, this is, I mean, I'm not, I'm taking no credit for this. I mean, this is, you know, the credit goes to the product team and to, uh, to the vendor for executing it. And, uh, they've done an, an absolutely stellar job on this. I'm very, very pleased with how this turned out. Um, so the, the keyboard is something which has also now entered production, should be available within a month or two in the Pine Store. And uh, we're really, really thrilled. We, we know that a lot of people are waiting for this. You are unstoppable. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love we, it. Now we have the Pine Book Mini. <laughs> yes. And we Indeed. finally have a device we can do our show notes on for Destination That's Linux. right. We all be sitting there with it. The, yeah. I like how you're thinking, Jill. Yeah. Well, that was it's, it's so awesome. I, I'm looking forward to playing with all the stuff. I mean, I, I, I think I'm just going to have a collection of Pine stuff at this point. That I've asked to just have a reoccurring recycling payment thing to Pine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, why, why, are we, send why are we pretending anymore about this? I'm just going to like every month donate some money and then you all just send me the next product that comes out. I, I think this could be like a membership opportunity here. I'm going to kick off. Yeah. yeah. Subscription so model. I, yeah. I call it, I'm, I'm, Increasing my collection of my pine forest. That's what I call it. <laughs> pine what, 60 forest. What did yes, we call fans of pine stuff? Because we re- renamed it on the last show. We're like, we're all pine heads. Isn't that what yeah. it was? Like pine heads? Yeah. That was like the official name. And then heard, uh, someone said it should be cone, cone heads. So, you know, who knows? But That's a good one. Yeah, we're the official fan club. Pine anyway. cone heads. Pine cone heads. Pine yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right. Well, it's, it was so awesome to have you back on, Lucas. Uh, thank you for joining us. And thank you so much for what you're doing for the Linux community in the hardware Yay. spot. This is pushing oh, Linux yeah. forward, the work mm-hmm. that you've done here. 
And it's just incredible to see. And we appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me, guys. So we want to thank Lucas again for coming on the show, giving us that exclusive interview into this device. I will own one, take my money, all of that. Absolutely. We're all (laughs) on board with that here. So in the gaming section this week, because we're going to be doing some gaming during the Game Fest, I wanted to talk about a game that hit my radar called Splitgate. The game Ballistic Overkill, me, Michael, and everyone used to play every now and then on the uh, on Linux and we would stream it live. It was a first person shooter. It was a lot of quick action. It was a lot of fun. We've been Love pretty much game. playing Xenotic now as kind of the replacement for that when they kind of pulled their Linux support out. Ballistic Overkill didn't uh, in their Linux support. They ended the game. Oh, they ended the, well, yeah. that, th- that did end <laughs> Linux support by ending yeah, the game. Yeah, it too, did, so. but yeah. <laughs> Uh, one of the cool things is I knew this game would get Noah's attention because there's guns, lots of guns. There's lots of people that you can take out. No scope. I can no scope. Oh, speak my language. All when can I shoot? When can I shoot people? Michael, oh, definitely. Oh, and probably fantastic. during Game Fest. Uh, this has beautiful graphics. The game looks so much fun. Me and Michael were playing with it the other day, and it's a combination of Portal and a first-person mm-hmm. shooter. So what mm-hmm. happens is... You can open up portals in different areas by hitting the, I think it was Z and X keys. And this allows you to do things like open up a portal behind your enemy who likes, you know, how like how Rocco used to sit up on a perch and just snipe all day long <laughs> and nobody could get to him. Well, I could sit behind the cover, open a portal behind them, pop up and shoot them. Like there's so many cool elements to this game by incorporating this portal system. So they describe it as split gate is a free to play Fast-paced multiplayer multiplayer shooter features player-controlled portals. Sci-fi shooter takes the FPS genre to a new dimension with these portal mechanics, delivering high-flying, multi-dimensional combat. And IGN describes Splitgate as Halo meets Portal. The game has 25,000 very positive reviews and is definitely going to be a go-to game when you get your Steam Deck in your hands. I mean, just imagine playing things like capture the flag. You know, you got the flag on the other team. You're running. You think you got it. All's clear. And all of a sudden, Jill opens a portal in front of you and shoots you. Well, Jill doesn't <laughs> shoot at people. Jill would say compliments and then nicely ask for the flag back. Right, Jill? You wouldn't. Yes. Lots yeah. of fun to be had here. I feel like we need to throw it in the Game Fest. So we might just do that. We might play this during the Game Fest. Also, something that is really cool is the software spotlight this week. And that is OBS Ninja, or as they're renaming it to VDO Ninja, but it's the same thing. And it's a really cool streaming solution, being able to do videos back and forth. And it it does it through peer-to-peer, which is what's really interesting about it. So you don't need a server. You just need to connect to it in a room. And it does like, there's a server for VDO Ninja and OBS Ninja. There's a server that they provide that does the handshakes. But once you do the handshakes, then it's just your peer-to-peer connected. And it's very cool because they have so many different configurations and options. You can even uh, customize like pro audio stuff, high quality video, and so many cool things. And it's 100% free and open source. There's no downloads or personal data collection needed or any sign-in whatsoever. You just connect to the room, and the person who wants to put it in their OBS has a director room that they go to, and they get even more features to be able to customize the whole thing. So it's really interesting because it allows you to do live video conferencing for a stream with a or you know different people in remote computers but also with smartphones and tablets and all sorts of stuff because it it adjusts itself based on the configurations of how many people are in it. 
But what's awesome is that it knows that the endpoint re result is the most important piece for the recording, right? So it doesn't try to do all the all the data to everybody in the room. So it lowers the quality that while you're having the conversation, that way you can save the bandwidth for having as high quality as possible on the recording, which I love that. And I'm, I'm looking forward to trying it out on Destination Linux at some point soon, mm -hmm. because I, I we're, we made it as a spotlight, as a way to kind of like, hey, we should try this. We should try this. <laughs> so uh, OBS Ninja, if you're looking for something like that, you can check it out at obs.ninja or video.ninja. I'm not sure when they've when they're going to do the rebranding completely, but they both work right now. Hey, maybe you've seen the news from Apple that they're going to be scanning your phone and its photo collection. Ryan, I have to ask, what was your reaction when you saw that? You know, I every time I see stuff like this, at first of all, I was shocked. I was very disappointed and surprised, and then I was disappointed in the way that this new story is being broken because every time our freedoms and our privacy is being taken away, it's done with the the idea of pulling on heartstrings. We have nobody, to save the children. Right. Nobody wants to defend these horrible things, whether it's terrorism or anti-children or whatever. So they, they basically pass this thing saying, hey, we need to be able to get into your phone and pull out photos and look at all this stuff because it saves children or it stops terrorists or whatever. And then we give away our freedom with nothing but a fleeting breath and it's all gone. And what people don't think about while their heartstrings are being pulled on is the implications of these things down the road. There are many ways that they could go about solving this problem without mm -hmm. invading your privacy. Mm -hmm. They could have consulted with lots of privacy experts. They could consulted with the EFF and found great ways to be able to do this and still be able to tackle this problem. But instead, Apple, who seemed to be making some good gains, at least attempting to discuss privacy, bring it out into the open, make people aware it's a problem, now is kind of backtracking in this. I, I hope it gets pushed out. I hope it gets pulled back, but I'm extraordinarily disappointed. If, you, if you're like Ryan and you find yourself on an iPhone and maybe thinking to yourself, I don't want my photos scanned. I want to move all my photos off. What are your options? Do you move them onto the cloud? That doesn't seem like that's a whole lot better. By the way, I'm the last person that's ever going to recommend you move something on the cloud, right? And because you listen to the show every single week, you say to yourself, I'm a Linux user and that's all I have on my desktop. How do I get my photos off of my iPhone? Well, this week we're going to help you. It's called iFuse and iFuse is a file system that runs silently in the background on your Linux system. It's probably in your distro's repo. So sudo apt install iFuse or it's definitely in the AUR. So very simple. You install iFuse and then you connect your iPhone to your computer. It's going to pop up a little message and say, do you want to trust this computer? Do you not want to trust this computer? Obviously we do want to trust the computer. So we'll click on that. And then what's going to happen is it's actually going to allow your Linux file browser to browse the file system on your phone. And it will mount the, it essentially creates like this little FTP connection into your phone. It's really cool. And you can browse the iPhone storage on the Linux platform with iFuse. And then it makes it easy to access files. So you can simply copy the files off inside of Dolphin if you're using KDE off of your iPhone into the photos folder where KDE will definitely not scan your photos, at least not more than blue will just to index them so that you can search through them. That's all. And that all happens locally on your system and doesn't tattletale either to your parents 
uh, or to the federal government. So it's a really nice feature there that they built into <laughs> to KDE and Linux. Again, it's called iFuse. We'll have more documentation for you in the show notes. You can check them out at destinationlinux.network. Make sure to tune in to future episodes for more tips and tricks, as well as go back to previous episodes. We have everything from the Linux newbie all the way up to the expert pseudo-er. So a huge thank you to Lucas and Bill, two awesome mm-hmm. interviews on the show this week. And thank you to all of you for supporting us by watching and listening to Destination Linux. If we didn't have all your support, we couldn't get awesome guests like this to do these exclusive interviews like we do. So thank you so much for your continued support. And if you want more DL, you can become a patron like all the beautiful faces that get piped in behind the scenes mm-hmm. and they get to hang out with us and do uh see the unedited versions of the show, as well as join the patron hangout after the show, VIP access to live recordings and lots of events. In addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live at dlnlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. Hey, we can't wait to see you in the chat. Also go right now to dlnstore.com where you can pick up some swag for DLN. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, backpacks, aprons, all sorts of great stuff that you can get there at dealinstore.com. No yeah, twill will you grill this weekend? Oh, I decided you I decided forgot. to be respectful and while I'm at his house I would not do the pun. However, thank you for doing it for me. <laughs> and make sure to check out all the amazing shows here on the Destination Linux network. We have the Pseudo show, the Ask Noah show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek channel, DLN Extend, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and make sure to check out the latest episode with Ryan and Matt on GameSphere, and get your Fedora hat on with our latest show, the Fedora Podcast. So go to Destination Linux Network and subscribe to all our wonderful shows to keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. And everybody, have a absolutely wonderful week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Bye-bye. Woohoo. Thanks everyone. <laughs>